Chapter 15 of The Pirate Island, A Story of the South Pacific by Harry Collinwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lost. When the three ladies entered Staunton Cottage, they were greatly surprised to find Captain Staunton and Lance there, both busy scraping lint, and still more surprised to see Dale bending over a fire with his coat off, diligently stirring the contents of a small tin saucepan. May was the first to throw any light upon the situation, which she did, directly the door opened, by rushing up to her mother and exclaiming excitedly, "'Oh, Mama, what do you think? I fell into the water, and Bobby jumped in too, and a naughty shark hurt poor Bobby and made his leg bleed, so Papa and Mr. Evelyn and some sailors brought him home and put him to bed, and he's up there now, Mama, so poorly.' Mrs. Staunton turned mutely to her husband for an explanation. For a single moment she felt quite incapable of speaking intelligibly. Her mental vision conjured up a picture of her child in some terrible danger, and, in her anxiety, her mind refused to take in more than that one awful fact, overlooking for the time the circumstance of Bob having received an injury. The danger to which May had been exposed, that was all she thought about, all she could think about, just then, and until she had heard the story, she had not attention for anything or anyone else. So Captain Staunton bade them all sit down, and then he related the full details of May's adventure, with Bob's gallant rescue of her, and the unfortunate accident which accompanied it. It is not necessary to repeat the frequent exclamations of horror and admiration which were elicited from the fair auditors as the various details of the occurrence were related, nor to describe the convulsive way in which May was clasped to her mother's breast, and fondled and cried over by all three of the sensitive loving women together, as they listened to the story of her terrible peril. Suffice it to say that, when the narrative was over, the womankind went with one accord up to Bob's bedside, and there so overwhelmed him with thanks and praises that the poor fellow was quite overcome, so that Lance had finally to interfere, and with mock severity, order their immediate withdrawal. Later on, when the excitement had somewhat subsided, and while they were all sitting down quietly to tea, the ladies produced their nuggets, passing them round for inspection, and relating the manner in which they had been found. Lance's experience as a gold digger now served the party in good stead, for he had no sooner taken the dull yellow lumps into his hand than he pronounced them to be veritable nuggets of pure gold, and after extracting from the fair finders, as accurate a description as they could give him of the locality in which the discovery had been made, he declared his belief that one or more pockets of gold existed in the immediate vicinity of the pool, and said he would take an early opportunity of personally inspecting the spot. The somewhat exciting events of the day caused the party to sit up chatting rather late that evening, and about midnight they were startled by the sound of knocking at the door. Captain Staunton opened it, and there stood Dickinson, who explained with some hesitation that, being as he couldn't sleep very well, he'd made so bold as to come up seeing a light in the winder, to ask how the little miss he was at her, her ducking, likewise the youngster as had got his leg hurt. The skipper was able to give satisfactory answers to both inquiries, and Mrs. Staunton, hearing that someone was asking after May, came out herself and thanked the ex-boatswain's mate so sweetly for his interest in her child that the poor fellow went away more dazed than ever but with a heart so light that he felt as if walking upon air. And during the short journey between the hut and his quarters, he solemnly and silently registered sundry fearful vows as to what he would do to anyone who dared so much as to think 
any harm of the inhabitants of Staunton Cottage. For the next two days everybody was exceedingly busy, the men being hard at work at the shipyard, while the women felt as though they could not do enough for Bob, or make enough of him. Indeed, in their anxiety to show their gratitude and admiration, they, Violet and Blanche at least, let enthusiasm outrun discretion so far that they bid fair to do the patient more harm than good, so that Mrs. Staunton was fain at last to take him under her own exclusive charge, forbidding the younger ladies to enter the room more than twice a day, once in the morning and again in the evening, and then rigorously limiting their visits to five minutes on each occasion. The third day following Bob's accident was Sunday. This day was always observed as a holiday by the pirates, not, it need scarcely be said, in deference to the fourth commandment, but simply because the men insisted upon having one day of rest from work, a day on which the more sober and steady members of the band were wont to devote some little attention to the toilet and to the repairs of their clothing, while the remainder, by far the greater number, gave themselves up to unrestrained riot and drunkenness, a circumstance which, as may easily be understood, always caused a considerable amount of anxiety to the inmates of Staunton Cottage. But however anxious they may have been, however fearful that, in their unbridled license, the pirates might at any moment break in upon the privacy of the cottage and attempt some outrage, divine service was invariably performed twice each Sunday in the lower apartment of the cottage. The day in question was no exception to the rule, and when the party began to assemble for the morning service, they saw that Dickinson had posted himself at a little distance from, but with an easy hail of, the door. He was accordingly invited in, and when he made his appearance, with his hair freshly cut, his long bushy beard and moustache carefully trimmed, and his person decently arrayed in a nearly new suit of blue pilot cloth, he looked not only every inch a sailor, but also a very fine specimen of manhood. He entered with some show of diffidence, and seemed half inclined to beat a hasty retreat again, when Mrs. Staunton invited him to occupy a seat next to her. However, he remained, conducting himself with the greatest propriety during the service, and evidently still having in remembrance the forms of the Episcopal ceremonial. When prayers were over, Captain Staunton delivered, according to his usual custom, a short address, in which he strove earnestly to give a plain and comprehensive answer to the question which Dickinson had propounded to him in the boat. It is not within the province of such a book as this to repeat what was said on the occasion. Suffice it to say that the skipper so far succeeded in his object that, when the service was over, the strange guest went away a happier and a more hopeful man than he had been for years. He presented himself again at the evening service, remaining, at Mrs. Staunton's invitation, to listen to the sacred music in which the party generally indulged for an hour at the close of the day. Thenceforth he was a changed man." On the following morning, Lance announced that he proposed to make, in Blanche's company, a visit to the gold mine, as they laughingly called it. Blanche's presence was required ostensibly in order that she might act in the capacity of pilot, but no one attempted to pretend that he or she was blinded by so exceedingly transparent an excuse. Everybody knew how eagerly the occasion was welcomed by the pair, as affording an opportunity for a long day's uninterrupted enjoyment of each other's society and everybody had accordingly something jocular to say about it. But what cared they, these two, happy in the first rosy flush of mutually acknowledged love? They laughingly returned jest for jest, and set off in high glee directly after breakfast, 
saying they were not to be expected back at any definite time, as they should stay until Lance had made a thorough examination of the entire locality. Deeply in love, however, as they both were, they had the forethought to provide themselves with a good substantial luncheon, and Evelyn also slipped a tolerably heavy hammer and cold chisel into his pocket. Blithely the pair stepped out, for is not happiness always light of foot? And in due time, a much shorter time, by the way, than was occupied in the previous journey, they arrived at the brink of the ravine, and looked down upon the tiny crystal stream and the pool wherein the nuggets had been found. Lance took in the geological characteristics of the place at a glance. He recognized the rocks as genuine outcrops of gold-bearing quartz, and the minute yellow specks therein as the precious metal itself, their visible presence being an indication of the extraordinary richness of the reef. "'Why, Blanche, darling!' he exclaimed, all his miner's instincts fully aroused as he chipped and broke off specimens here and there, to find tiny pellets and nodules of gold thickly clustering in each. "'This mine of yours is worth a nation's ransom. I do not believe there is such another reef as this in the whole world. With proper crushing machinery, we might all make our fortunes in a month.' But let us take a look at the pool. Unless I am greatly mistaken, there is a princely fortune lying about here, and to be had for the mere picking up, without the need of machinery at all. They scrambled down the side of the ravine, and stood by the margin of the pool. Then Lance looked upward in the direction of the flow of the rivulet, attentively noting the run of the strata. Glancing about him, he saw a small broken branch lying on the ground at no great distance and securing it, he cut away with his knife the sides of the larger end so as to produce a flat surface, making of the branch a very narrow-bladed wooden spade, in fact. Reaching as far forward as he could, he plunged the blade of his extemporized spade into the sandy bottom of the pool, pressing it gently down into the sand until he could get it no deeper, when he pried it upward so as to bring to the surface a specimen of the subsoil. Raising it very carefully, the end of the branch at length came into view, bringing with it a small quantity of yellow glittering sand. Some of this, by care and patience, he managed to get out of the water before it was quite washed away, and placing it in the palm of his hand, he gently agitated it to and fro beneath the surface of the water, until all the lighter particles were washed away, when there remained in his hand a minute quantity of fine yellow dust. "'There,' he said, "'what do you think of that, Blanche?' It is gold dust, my dear girl, and if we could drain off the water from this pool, and it might be done without much trouble, we should find plenty of it underneath that fine white sand. Now, let us inspect a little further. They accordingly began to walk slowly up the border of the stream, which descended the ravine by a series of miniature cataracts a foot or so in height, usually with small sandy-bottomed basins beyond. One of these basins proved to be so small and so shallow that, Standing on a projecting ledge of rock, Lance was able to make a tolerably thorough examination of its bed with the aid of the before-mentioned branch, and he had not been very long stirring up the sand with it when he turned up four very fine nuggets, varying in size from a hen's egg to a six-pound shot. "'Just as I expected,' he exclaimed. "'Now, the spot from which this gold originally came is at the head of this ravine. These nuggets have all been brought down here by the water.' and the higher we go, the larger will the nuggets be, because, of course, the heaviest of them will have traveled the shortest distance. But before pushing our investigations further, I propose that we sit down here and have luncheon. This is a picturesque spot, and what is perhaps more to the purpose, 
I am frightfully hungry. They accordingly seated themselves upon a great moss-grown rock, and partook of the contents of the basket with all the appetite of healthy people who had passed a long morning in the fresh, pure air. Luncheon over, and Lance having, at Blanche's request, or perhaps the word command would be nearer the truth, lighted a cigar, the pair proceeded with their investigations. The characteristics of the stream continued to be the same, short lengths of sparkling water flowing over a boulder-strewn bed, diminutive rapids, tiny cataracts, and occasional quiet pools between. One or two of the smallest and least difficult of these pools Lance cursorily examined, finding in each case one or more nuggets, the sizes increasing as the searchers made their way upward, and thus confirming Lance's theory. He did not, however, devote much time to the actual search for gold. His object was just then to trace the gold to its source, and, at the same time, to note what capabilities existed for damming off the most promising spots, with a view to future operations. A happy idea, as Blanche thought it, suddenly occurred to that young lady. "'Oh, Lance!' she exclaimed. "'What geese are we?' "'Are we, darling?' said her companion. "'Probably, if anyone happened to see us just now, sliding his arm round her waist and kissing her. "'They would be inclined to think so. "'Nay, you need not pout. "'It is entirely your own fault. "'The fact is that you looked so pretty "'the temptation was simply irresistible.' "'Was it?' she retorted. "'Well, I think it very rude of you to interrupt me like that. "'Just at the moment I was about to give utterance to a brilliant idea. "'But seriously, Lance, dear, "'do you not think we could collect a sufficiency of this gold "'to purchase our freedom from these horrid men?' "'Evelyn thought the matter over for a minute or two. "'I am afraid not,' he said at last. "'I have not the slightest doubt about our being able to collect a sufficient quantity of gold. "'The ground seems to be absolutely gorged with it. "'But the difficulty would be in the effecting of an arrangement "'by which these fellows would be persuaded to release us after the payment of the ransom. "'They would take the gold and afterwards simply break faith with us. "'No, our services are of too much value to them, unluckily,' for them ever to voluntarily permit our departure, and we shall therefore have to follow out our original plan of escape, if possible, unless a better offers. But we will endeavor to possess ourselves of some of this enormous wealth, and we must trust to chance for the opportunity to convey it away with us. They were now near the head of the ravine, which seemed to terminate in a sort of cul-de-sac, a huge reef of auriferous rock jutting out of the ground and forming an almost perpendicular wall across the end of the ravine. On reaching the base of this wall, the tiny stream they had been following was found to have its source a yard or two from the face of the rock, bubbling up out of the ground in the midst of a little pool some three yards across. It was near this spot, therefore, in all probability, that the precious metal would be found in richest abundance. Lance accordingly began to look around him for indications of the direction in which he ought to search. About ten feet up the face of the rock wall he saw what appeared to be a fissure in the stone, and thinking it possible that an examination of this fissure might aid him, he, with some difficulty, managed to scramble up to it. When he reached the spot he found, however, instead of a mere fissure or crack in the rock, as he had imagined, a wide, projecting shoulder of the reef, which artfully masked a low, narrow recess. Penetrating into this recess, Lance found that, after he had proceeded two or three yards, the walls widened out, and the whole place had the appearance of being an entrance to a subterranean cavern. 
thinking that, if such were indeed the case, the discovery might prove of great value, as affording the party a perfectly secure place of refuge in case of necessity, he emerged once more, and, discovering from his more elevated standpoint an easy means of descent, hastened down to Blanche, and informing her of his discovery, requested her to sit down and rest whilst he completed his explorations. He then looked about him for something to serve the purpose of a torch, and at length found a fragment of dry wood, which on being ignited promised to burn steadily enough for his purpose. Armed with this, he was about to reascend the face of the rock when Blanche begged that she might be allowed to accompany him, as she was sure she would feel lonely sitting out there by herself. Lance accordingly gave her his hand, and without any very great difficulty managed to get her safely up on the narrow platform in front of the opening. Relighting his torch, which he had extinguished after satisfying himself that it would burn properly, Lance led the way into the cleft, holding his brand well before him and as high as possible, and giving his disengaged hand to Blanche, who suffered from the disadvantage of being in total darkness, her lover's bulky form almost entirely filling up the narrow passage they were traversing, and completely eclipsing the light. Soon, however, they found the walls receding from them on either side, the roof rising at the same time, and when they had penetrated some fifty or sixty yards, they were able to walk side by side. It was a curious place in which they found themselves. The rocky walls, which met overhead like an arch, were composed entirely of auriferous quartz, the gold gleaming in it here and there in long, thin flakes. The passage sloped gently upward, whilst it at the same time swept gradually round toward the right hand, and though the air was somewhat close, there was an almost utter absence of that damp, earthy smell which is commonly met with in subterranean chambers. As they continued on their way, the rocks about them gradually underwent a change, the gold no longer showing in thin, detached, thread-like layers, but glittering in innumerable specks and tiny nodules all over the surface, so that, as the flickering, uncertain light of the torch fell upon the walls, they glistened as though covered with an unbroken coating of gold leaf. But this novel appearance, attractive as it was, was nothing to the surprise which awaited them further on. They had penetrated some eight or nine hundred yards, perhaps, into the bowels of the earth, and were thinking of returning when they suddenly emerged from the passage into a vast cavern so spacious in all its dimensions that their tiny light quite failed to reveal the farther side of the, or the roof. But what little they did see was sufficient to root them to the ground, speechless for the moment with wonder and admiration. The rocky floor upon which they stood was smooth as a marble pavement, apparently from attrition by the action of water through countless centuries, though the place was now perfectly dry. What chiefly excited their admiration, however, was the circumstance that the floor was not only smooth, it was as polished as glass, and in places quite transparent, while it glowed and sparkled with all the colors of the rainbow. They seemed to be standing on a surface of purest crystalline ice, seamed, streaked, veined, and clouded in the most marvelous and fantastic manner with every conceivable hue, through and into which the faint light of their torch gleamed, flashed, and sparkled with an effect of indescribable splendor. "'Oh, Lance,' whispered Blanche at last, "'was ever anything so lovely seen before?' "'A perfect palace of the gnomes, darling, is it not?' returned Lance in his usual tone of voice. And then they stood awestruck and enthralled, 
as his words were caught up by countless echoes and flung backward and forward, round and round, and in the air above them, in as many different tones, from a faint whisper far overhead to deep, sonorous, musical, bell-like notes reverberating round the walls and echoing away and away, farther and farther, fainter and fainter, until at last, after an interminable time, as it seemed to them, the sounds died completely away, and silence reigned once more. "'It is marvelous, superb,' whispered Evelyn, not caring to again arouse the echoes of the place. "'Come, Blanche, sweetheart, let us explore a little further while our torch still holds out.' Hand in hand, and with cautious steps, for the floor was almost as slippery as ice, they began to make the tour of this fairy-like cavern. But they had not proceeded a dozen steps before they were again arrested, spellbound. The walls, as far as the feeble light of the torch would reveal them, were of rock of the same character as the floor, only that instead of being smooth and even, they were broken up into fantastic projections of every imaginable form, while here and there huge masses started boldly out from the face, forming flying buttresses with projecting pinnacles and elaborate carved work, all executed by nature's own hand, while elsewhere there clustered columns so regular and perfect in their shape that they might have been transferred with scarcely a finishing touch of the chisel to the aisles of a cathedral. Where the light happened to fall upon these, the effect was bewilderingly beautiful, the rays being reflected and refracted from and through the crystals of which they were composed, until they shone and sparkled like columns of prismatic fire. Then a new wonder revealed itself, for on approaching more closely to the glittering walls, it became apparent that they were seamed with wide cracks here and there, the cracks being filled with a cement-like substance so thickly studded with nuggets of gold of all sizes that in less than five minutes a man might have gathered more than he could carry away. Passing along the walls, Lance found that it was everywhere the same, and that in stumbling upon this subterranean palace of the fairies they had also discovered a mine of incalculable wealth. Hastily gathering a few of the finest nuggets within reach, they set out to return. They had apparently made the entire circuit of the cavern, for there close to them yawned the black mouth of a passage. This was fortunate, as the torch had now burned so low, that Lance saw with consternation it would be necessary for them to make the greater part of their return journey in darkness. "'But never mind, Blanche, darling,' he said cheerfully, remarking upon this unpleasant circumstance. "'It is all plain sailing. There are no obstacles in our way, and if we have to grope slowly along, still the marvellous sight we have seen is well worth so trifling a penalty. Give me your hand, sweetheart, and let us get into the passage, for I shall have to abandon the light. It is scorching my fingers as it is.' Blanche silently gave her hand to her lover, a trifle nervous at having to traverse so long a distance in impenetrable darkness, and buried, who knew how deep, beneath the surface. Buried! The idea was a most unpleasant one just then, and she shuddered as they plunged hand in hand into the passage, Lance at the same moment flinging the charred stump of the burnt-out torch back into the great cavern behind them. Cautiously they groped their way onward, Lance feeling his way along the wall of the passage and making sure of his footing at every step by passing his foot lightly forward over the ground before advancing. In this manner the pair proceeded for what seemed to be a considerable length of time, at least Blanche thought it so, for at last she said with a slight tremor in her voice, "'How much longer do you think we shall be, Lance? Surely we cannot be very far from the entrance now.' 
"'No, we must be getting pretty close to it,' said Lance. "'But surely you are not feeling frightened, little woman?' "'Not exactly frightened,' answered Blanche. "'But this terrible darkness and this awful silence makes me nervous. "'It seems so dreadful to be groping one's way like this, "'without being able to see where one is going. "'And then I have a stupid feeling that the rocks above us "'may give way at any moment and bury us.' "'Not much fear of that,' said Lance with a laugh which went echoing and reverberating along the passage in such a weird, unearthly manner that Blanche clung to her companion in terror. These rocks, he continued, have supported for years, probably centuries, the weight above them, and it is not at all likely they will give way just now without any cause. I dare say the time does seem long to you, darling, but you must remember we are walking at a much slower pace now than when we passed over the ground before. Of course, we might walk faster, since we know the ground to be tolerably even and regular. Still, it is best to be cautious. If either of us happens to stumble here in the dark, we might receive a rather severe blow. However, keep up your courage. We cannot be very much longer now. Once more they continued their way in silence, the ground sloping gently downwards all the while, as they could tell notwithstanding the darkness, and still no welcome ray of daylight appeared in the distance to tell them that they were approaching their journey's end. At length a vague and terrible fear began to make itself felt in Lance's own mind. Recalling the incidents of their inward journey, he tried to reckon the time which they had occupied in passing from the open air along the gallery into the great cavern, and he considered that they could not possibly have been longer than twenty minutes, probably not as long as that. But it seemed to him that they had been groping there in the intense darkness for two hours at least. No, surely it could not be so long as that. The darkness made the time lag heavily. But if they had been there only one hour, they ought by this time to have reached daylight once more, slowly as they had been moving. Surely they had not. Oh, no, it was not possible. It could not be possible. And yet, merciful God, what if they had, by some dreadful mischance, lost their way? The strong man felt the beads of cold perspiration start out upon his forehead, as the dreadful, indefinable, haunting fear at length took shape and presented itself before his mind in all its grisly horror. He had faced death often enough to look him in the face now or at any time without fear, but to meet him thus, to wander on and on in the thick darkness, to grope blindly along the walls of this huge grave until exhaustion came and compelled them to lie down and die, never to look again upon the sweet face of nature, never again to have their eyes gladdened by the blessed light of the sun or the soft glimmer of the starlit heavens, to vanish from off the face of the earth and to pass away from the ken of their friends, leaving no sign, no clue of their whereabouts or of their fate. Oh, God, it was too horrible. Not for himself, no. If it were God's will that thus he must die, he had courage enough to meet his fate calmly and as a brave man should. Thank God he had so lived that, let death come upon him never so suddenly, he could not be taken unawares. Lance Evelyn was by no means a saint. He knew it and acknowledged it in this dread hour, but he had always striven honestly and honorably to do his duty, whatever it might be. With all his strength, and then too, like the apostle, he knew in whom he trusted. No, Lance was not afraid of death on his own account, it was for the weak, timorous girl by his side that all his sympathies were aroused. Doubtless she too possessed a faith firm enough to enable her to meet her fate undismayed. He believed she did. 
but what terrible bodily suffering must she pass through before the end came? But perhaps, after all, he was alarming himself unnecessarily. Even now they might be within a few yards of the outlet, and yet not be able to see it, because, as he suddenly remembered, the passage was curved from its very commencement. But then he also remembered the passage at its outer end was so narrow that Blanche had to walk behind him, and here they were, walking hand in hand and side by side, as they had been ever since they had entered this interminable passage. Blanche, said he, steadying his voice as well as he could, put out your hand, dear, and see whether you can reach the right-hand wall. He felt her lean away from him, and then came her reply in a broken voice. No, Lance, I cannot. Why, pet, he exclaimed, I really believe you are crying. Yes, I am, she acknowledged. Forgive me, Lance, dear. I really cannot help it. I shall be better by and by, perhaps, but, oh, it is so dreadful. You are very brave and very good to me, but I know you must have realized it before now. The dreadful truth that we are lost here. Tut, tut. Nonsense, child, Lance answered cheerily. Why, Blanche, you will get quite unnerved if you suffer such thoughts to take possession of you. There, lay your head on my shoulder, darling, and have your cry comfortably out. You will feel better and braver afterwards. He put his arm round her as he spoke, and the poor frightened girl laid her head upon his breast, trustfully as a child, and sobbed as though her heart would break. Her companion let her sob on unchecked. He did not even say a word to comfort her. What could he say, with that frightful suspicion every moment gathering force and strengthening itself into certainty? No, better not to say anything, better not to buoy her up with delusive hopes. And, oh, how thankful he felt that the terrible task of breaking to her the news of their awful position had been spared him. The sobs gradually grew less violent, and at length ceased altogether. Then Blanche raised her head and said quietly, now, Lance, I am better, and feel able to listen to the worst you can tell me. I will not ask you to give me your candid opinion of our position, because I know it is. It must be the same as my own. But what do you propose that we should do? Well, said Lance, as cheerily as he could, the first thing I intend to do is to light a match and take a glance at our surroundings. It was stupid of me that I did not think of doing so before. He drew a box of matches from his pocket, being a smoker, he was never by any chance without them, and the next moment a sharp, rasping noise was heard, and a tiny flame appeared. The light, however, was too feeble to penetrate that Egyptian darkness. They saw nothing but each other's faces, hers pale, with wide-open, horror-stricken eyes, and his, with contracted brow and firmly compressed lips, indicative of an unconquerable determination to struggle to the last against this dreadful fate which menaced them. This will not do, said he. We must improvise a better torch than this. He fumbled once more in his pockets, and presently found a sheet or two of paper on which he remembered jotting down some notes relative to matters connected with the construction of the battery. These he folded very carefully, so loosely as to burn well, yet tightly enough to burn slowly, and so give them an opportunity for at least a momentary glance round them. Then he struck another match, applied it to one of the tiny torches, and raised the light aloft. As he did so, Blanche uttered a piercing shriek, and seizing him by the arm, dragged him back against the rocky wall of the passage. Then, pointing before her, she gasped, Look, Lance, look! Lance looked in the direction toward which she pointed, 
and grew faint and sick as he saw that they had been standing on the very verge of a precipice. A stone, dislodged by Blanche's hasty movement, had rolled over the edge, and they now heard it bounding with a loud echoing clang down the face of the rock, down, 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 the sound loud at first, growing fainter and fainter, until at last a dull muffled splash told that it had reached water more than a hundred fathoms below. End of chapter 15